if you could uh, state and spell your name, please. Sure. My name is Cindy Campbell, and that is C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. Since you're in person, uh, you may notice that I'm not always looking at you, and it's because of the Zoom screen. Of course. So I hope it won't be too distracting for Don't you. Don't worry. Uh, could, I understand you were a nurse for a very long time, for 30 years, is that right? Correct. 28 years, to be exact. Okay. And you have an unusual balance of frontline skills and uh, academia, is that fair? Correct. Okay. Why don't you tell us about uh, some of your work in academia? Sure. So um, uh, just to detail a bit about my uh, education, I started as a diploma nurse from Mohawk College in Hamilton and then got my uh, Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from the University of Victoria. Uh, then went on to complete a master's in science of health and aging, in health and aging at Queen's University. Um, I've, uh, I've, I went on as well to do some, uh, two actually, uh, very competitive RNAO uh, advanced clinical practice fellowships. And on my first one, I published a paper on that was training of endoscopy nurses. Um, and uh, then I, in terms of my academic components at work, I did go on to be an educator. Um, but uh, prior to that, I uh, always very much prioritized my frontline um, contributions. I found that that was uh, essential and, and often a lot of a disconnect with, the, um, let's call them the higher-ups, is that they didn't really have that frontline uh, long-term experience, Those that's sort of the engine of the hospital that I always um, probably found the most rewarding of my work. So by frontline, you're referring to hospital work. That would be uh, both the ER and the operating rooms? Uh, correct. Now, I was in um, perioperative services. So what that would be is um, I was, I'm was i a certified operating room nurse, uh, and I also held a certification from the Canadian Nurses Association in Gastroenterology. Uh, and I was able to work across, I was only nurse in my hospital, actually, that could work across all divisions of perioperative services. So I could work in the OR, uh, our recovery room area, and also in our endoscopy unit. Going back to your fellowships, uh, you mentioned them very humbly, but these fellowships were through the Registered Nursing Union of Ontario? Uh, the Registered Nurses Association, the RNAO, yes. Yes, thank you for that correction. And my understanding is that it's quite um, rare or it's a privilege to do these fellowships? Um, it, they, they really are. They tend to be very, um, as we said, very competitive. Uh, and you really have to have uh, a really well laid out, um, um, you know, package, um, application package. And also you really have to have the support of your hospital behind you. Um, so the hospital has to uh, really endorse what you're doing. And you also have to be a, a, a respected employee to have established that rapport and trust to uh, go ahead and, and be uh, granted one of those. So it's, uh, it's, it's a combination of the application and the hospital end. One of the fellowships was with respect to the, the knowledge or the practice gap for new graduates, is that correct? Correct. Okay. 
So yeah, my hospital um, was concerned. There, there's sort of a quite a uh, established body of evidence in the nursing profession of sort of a well-identified practice gap with recent grads. And uh, this is that uh, they are lacking, um, and to no fault of their own, but they're lacking in a lot of the clinical skills and some of the coping mechanisms and that kind of thing to endure when they get thrown in, so to speak, into a full-time job. Um, so this particular uh, fellowship was to try to um, interview different levels of whether that be university profs, nurse educators, frontline nurses, and to try to devise ways that perhaps as the hospital we could move forward to better support our uh, new grads transitioning to practice. So that will eventually take us to some of our later discussion on the effects of the pandemic. Okay. But let's set the stage with respect to the hospitals early on in the pandemic. Right. What was happening uh, both in the ER, in the operating rooms? How busy was the hospital? Um, now, again, I can only speak to what uh, I would have witnessed as an OR nurse at that time. So uh, I was actually casual at that period. It was just before I was doing some of the fellowships. So uh, I was casual in my ambulatory surgical unit. Uh, that unit was closed, and we were told we were going to all be put into the main OR. Um, and uh, from my perspective of what I saw there, now to be fair, um, I didn't come in that often during the pandemic proper at the beginning. Um, that was because uh, at the beginning I was told I would be uh, needed to cover a lot of sick time and that uh, I would be trained um, as with all the other nurses to be redeployed potentially in, in need uh, units across the hospital. Um, but that never happened. Uh, I rarely came in to cover sick time and uh, in terms of going to the other units, I also was never redeployed there. And the majority of the staff I worked with, um, from what I'm understanding, were not either. Um, what I think people didn't understand about the pandemic is, let's say you were to take an area like the operating room. Um, let, we had, let's call it, let's say we have 16 rooms. Uh, when you start closing those rooms uh, down to, say, emergency rooms only, which is what they did. So let's say that was, I forget, let's call it five ORs functioned out of 16. Uh, you now have a surplus of staff uh, that you, because um, again, you can't just tell people not to come in when they are, have been booked or are or guaranteed work part-time, full-time staff. So that had excess staff in the OR alone. And then the recovery room is also staffed to accommodate that number of, um, of patients, which was dramatically reduced. Um, and then so on throughout the hospital, there's ambulatory clinics that were staffed with nurses that were also closed down. So in actuality, from what I was seeing, there was a lot of excess nurses that were often being used to do quite menial jobs, not menial, important, but jobs that, that wouldn't necessarily have um, conveyed what, what the nurses at that time were being depicted as being quite stressed out and overworked. A lot of them were doing uh, testing, uh, um, surveillance of people coming into the hospital, that kind of thing. And um, I did note that the staff rooms were 
amply full of staff. And uh, just, you know, like when you see those um, videos of the staff dancing and doing the conga lines and the, the pillows in their pants and stuff and goofing around, uh, that would have been a, a, a fantasy for me in, in my work to be able to have that much time. Never in my history of work would have we been able to have danced around. That's Never. So um, I, I think that I'm not, it's not to say that a lot of nurses did not work very hard, but certainly um, I suggest that not all the nurses deserved the accolades of the heroes that they were getting at that time. On the few times you were called in to work, mm -hmm. uh, how busy were the emergency rooms as far as you could observe? I know it wasn't your ward, but I understand you had to walk through there. Yeah. Um, so what I observed of the ER, and um, again, to be fair, I was not in there with any significant regularity, but all I can do is compare it to what I was used to. And my unit used to be attached to the ER, um, so I would often go in there for supplies or to send uh, samples, specimens, that kind of thing. And the ER prior to the pandemic um, resembled what I would call a, a war zone. <laughs> it was uh, beds in the hallways, uh, every cubicle full, the nurses super busy. Um, and uh, in the times post pandemic or during the pandemic, um, it was compared to that picture, very calm. Um, beds not, uh, cubicles not full, um, nurses sitting more and having a bit more time by all appearances. And um, again, nowhere nearly the pictures that I was expecting or what I was used to. Now, of course, that changed as the pandemic advanced. Uh, what happened with respect to staffing levels once uh, vaccinations became required? Um, well, again, uh, that's kind of difficult to say, only because what was happening during that time is, don't forget, uh, unvaxxed and vaccinated nurses were working shoulder to shoulder, um, and there was no issue. Um, and they were hailed, as we said, as the equal hero to the, um, to the vaccinated, unvaccinated were, were both hailed as heroes. In terms of what happened to the staffing, those numbers really were not uh, declared. Um, the hospital did not announce their official numbers. And um, again, I think what a lot of people aren't understanding when they're told about losses in healthcare is they're not given an accurate picture. Um, we hear people like uh, Doris Grinspun uh, from the RNAO uh, disqualifying and just dismissing this as a small few, a uh, small few number. Uh, meanwhile, what they're not telling people is that uh, the hospital at that time said to nurses and everyone, um, hey, if you, if you wanna leave right now, leave, and we won't put a black mark on your record, um, and we won't report you to the college uh, because it is processed that once every time a nurse is, is terminated, that report would go to the CNO. And of course, justifiably, that worries and concerns a lot of nurses. So a lot of nurses resigned um, and possibly even, uh, I can't say it was equal number or even more, I don't know, but let's just say that anyone younger looking to uh, keep working in the profession uh, for very numerous reasons 
would have much more taken the opportunity to have accepted the resignation route versus the termination route. Um, and there was another field, of course, of people who took early retirement that I've heard of. You know, they, they did that way out as well. They'd had enough. And uh, a, another group took leaves. And that's another segment that is also typically not captured in apparently these tiny numbers discussed in, in the press. My understanding is that uh, apparently at Hamilton Health Sciences, and that's a very large health network, mm -hmm. The retirement was of rate, the retirement rate was of 30%? Well, apparently over um, 2022, it had a 30% increase. Um, and a, uh, Hamilton Health Sciences is an interesting uh, one. Just to sort of give an example of, of potentially some numbers that were lost here, and I'm not saying they all went, they were all lost to mandates, but in September of 2021, uh, Hamilton Health Services listed about 700 vacancies. Um, then that is when they started threatening the policy. They brought it in officially in January. And just a recent report coming out of uh, that same health network reports uh, staff vacancy now of 1,500 staff. Um, so that about doubled their vacancy rate since then, plus potentially had the retirement rate go up as uh, the retirement rate go up as well. We'll take a step back to some of the medical recommendations from Dr. Kieran Moore. Sure. And uh, what the hospitals did. So can you tell us what uh, the official guideline for, from the chief medical officer in Ontario was with respect to vaccine mandates for staff and what the hospitals ended up doing? Yeah, and that's kind of the, the, the puzzling part here, is um, our chief officer of health in a directive six that he put out in August of 2021, um, had an accommodation for unvaccinated workers to keep patients safe and protected. And that was to do regular antigen testing. Um, and, and, you know, it's uh, potentially at that time, like to sort of give a bit of a time frame, in July of 2021, you have uh, the CDC uh, acknowledging that there has been a report, um, good, sufficient data to show that there has been uh, vaccine breakthrough, reinfection, and that uh, evidently that the vaccinated uh, once sick, were carrying the same viral load as the unvaccinated. And that is why you saw the CDC's mask mandate change, their, their recommendations change, sorry. It went from, for a little while it was, hey, the vaccinated don't have to mask, to suddenly they have to mask. So they knew something, as did Kieran Moore, as did the hospitals, that this vaccine was starting to show some um, inabilities or limitations to, to quite live up to the, the, the standards of a, of a newly vaccinated individual. So um, as we said, uh, those, the hospitals went ahead and instead of listening to Moore's accommodation, they followed the Ontario Science Table. And the Ontario Science Table uh, allotted for no accommodations. It was either vaccinate or nothing. Um, so that's, they took much more the, the militant stance 
uh, versus the offering the workers a choice. Before we move on to the choice issue, uh, while these policies and mandates were in place for staff, yeah. my understanding is that unvaccinated visitors were allowed into the hospital. Is that right? Um, there was a time when, sadly, they, they were not, but the policies did change. And uh, uh, over the last, uh, thankfully, several months, even longer, they, they did stop them. And, and there are certain hospitals like St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton, where I believe that the unvaccinated uh, visitors were allowed in the process when they were in, like firing people as well. So that was definitely an inconsistent application of, of the policy. Yes, apparently visitors uh, somehow become more important than nurses, which is peculiar. Correct. So going back to the choice, uh, often people will say that immunizations, vaccinations are nothing new for staff in healthcare. Yeah. Can you comment on how it's true that there are policies and requirements, but on uh, choices that exist for all the other vaccinations? Yeah, so again, that's that's another bit of a, a massaged fact. Um, the There are, in fact, required vaccines to... Um, obtain jobs at hospitals. But when I hear Anthony Dale, the CEO of the OHA speak, he mentions things like um, TB, hepatitis, and uh, measles, mumps, rubella. So to clarify some of those, uh, TB is not a vaccine requirement. That is done by a skin test that, um, that is, is taken. Um, hepatitis, majority of hospitals that I know of, it's a recommendation, not a requirement. And indeed, things like MMR and chickenpox um, often are requirements. However, uh, they allot for natural immunity. So they allow um, staff to show proof of antibodies, proof of past infection. Um, and that is not the case in COVID, of course, even though now they have good evidence to show that natural immunity is indeed um, as strong as, if not possibly stronger than two vaccines, but natural immunity is apparently completely disqualified in this case. Also in hospitals, uh, they used to, uh, uh, when I say used to, they still claim to, uh, but they, they, their past uh, behavior shows they are not, giving uh, religious or creed exemptions. Um, an interesting case in my hospital is I had a colleague uh, start working in the OR, um, and this was probably, I believe it was about six or eight months prior to the pandemic. She uh, submitted a religious exemption um, uh, for MMR vaccine, and the hospital accepted it and had her working in the hospital. That same nurse was fired for the same religious exemption um, that many months, just that short window later. Um, and hospitals also used to accommodate medical exemptions uh, without a th near threat of death, which now appears to be the standard for COVID. Um, and, you know, time and time again, there's nurses who uh, had to um, leave nursing because they had quality medical concerns that their doctors confirmed were indeed warranted uh, an exemption, 
But every doctor said, you know, I cannot write this for you or I will lose my license. And that is unprecedented. Um, so again, it's, it's, these, uh, it's this, this lack of choice that is, is concerning in a democracy and in Canada. Um, we have an interesting arbitration finding um, out of British Columbia, and that was the health sciences um, union there, our health services, sorry, put forward a, uh, they challenged a mandatory mask or vaccinate policy. And this was where uh, they offered the choice of you can take a vaccine or you can wear a mask, an influenza vaccine or a mask. That policy uh, was uh, won by the employer, but the arbitrator had some pretty clear words about choice. And throughout his um, findings, it is consistent that he um, emphasizes the dignity of choice over receiving a medical procedure. He confirms that if the mask was being used for the sole purpose of increasing vaccination rates, that he would be very concerned. Um, and that that was, would not be something that would be within the, the letter of the law. And again, he consistently speaks about policy that had to be not arbitrary, logical, reasonable, uh, fair and equitable, of course. And interestingly enough, one of the expert witnesses for the hospital, um, Dr. Uh, Van Bider, Van Biden, I believe his name is, he said, you know what, we really want to give our people a choice. Uh, we have many valuable, he said, people with religious concerns that may not want this vaccine, and we want to give them the choice of a mask. So in this case, with COVID vaccines, we had the choice of taking testing. Um, and again, that would have been the humane, dignified uh, hu um, way to do things, but that was rejected. Um, and again, the Ontario Science Table, they, um, they, they put forth some very puzzling um, data. And uh, they, for example, in the height of all of um, the just about to begin their, their terminations of hospitals, they um, put out a report about the risk of burnout to, um, to the healthcare workforce and how that burnout was getting to be to unsustainable levels and that likely it would cause, again, an, an unsustainable hospital workforce. Um, out of the, they also said that people, hospitals must take every measure they can to secure staff, uh, to reduce turnover, and to um, reduce overtime, that kind of thing. So in, from this corner of their mouth, they're saying, stop burnout, it's dangerous, it's going to cause our system to collapse. And this corner of the mouth, they're telling uh, the hospitals to terminate nurses. And, and uh, if, if, sorry if I could go on, it's just, I found it very, again, shocking. From the Ontario Science Table, here, uh, if you can read their letter to Ford in support of mandatory policy, it is a uh, very, um, wow, uh, shocking read. Uh, and I wonder if all the people standing behind the science table actually even read this document. You know, it begins by saying, um, you know, we're going to have a lot 
of, of staff. We, we know staff turnover is a problem. We don't want it, but we know that vaccinated staff are going to get really sick all the time, and they're going to cause a lot of burnout to the vaccinated that, of course, are never going to get sick and are going to stay there working. So you're better to fire them and let them have sick time. And that, that's very rich because um, uh, data from uh, FOIs submitted to these some hospitals showed that staff vaccination, uh, sorry, staff illness rate uh, in hospitals with mandatory policies in place went through the roof in January with Omicron. Um, and also BC uh, shows at one point they were talking again about record-breaking um, sickness, staff illness. Um, that was 28,000 staff was off in one week in BC, a province with a mandatory policy. So this sort of showed not only some of the limitations of the vaccine to control Omicron, but uh, that the policies, in fact, uh, had some pretty questionable uh, outcomes potentially. Uh, it's, it was so bad in BC based on what I've read, and I believe also in a few small towns in Ontario that hospitals closed in rural areas. Yeah, that's, that's very concerning. And again, um, all of this speaks to this, uh, this nest, the necessity of these hospitals to have done risk assessments, to have um, figured, okay, how are what, what we do to our staff going to impact public safety? Um, um, and, you know, it's, we all know now that uh, we apparently, our livelihoods, our children's education, our, uh, and everything appears to now be tied to hospitals, sustaining hospitals, hospital resources. Um, so to have hospitals fire uh, trained, experienced staff and potentially lead to some pretty serious concerns that happened as a result. I mean, we have a Toronto Star article that speaks about, you know, that uh, an analysis showed a staggering number of closures across the province. Um, they, they, the, the nursing shortage by ER doctors was described as brutal. Some said that the healthcare networks were on the verge of collapse. And like we saw with that data from Hamilton Health Sciences, the um, vacancy rates went through the went through the roof. And the more concerning part is that these um, hospitals, and maybe not to even call them hospitals more, I think what we have to start doing is making CEOs that did this accountable. So these CEOs <laughs> knew well that there was already significant vacancy rates at their hospitals when they put in these policies. Um, and that uh, subjects their patients potentially to some pretty serious quality and safe care concerns. And these CEOs also, they, uh, their responsibilities now, like we said before, uh, with the functioning of healthcare to their community, um, they need to start uh, realizing that their obligations extend beyond just their walls. They can no longer, when they make decisions like that, just say, well, this affects my, our patients and our staff. Now we know that we're intimately tied to hospitals and keeping hospitals going. Um, and uh, so, as we said, I, I think that if they had been following proper, well-established policies, and sorry, standards around developing policy, 
that starts always with a risk, a risk analysis. And um, I would argue that these institutions likely did not do that. Um, and that put the public at risk, it put their patients at risk, um, and the risks from these kind of policies are, are, are numerous. You know, you, with another major risk that is never discussed is the risk of demoralization of staff that were felt as if they were coerced to vaccinate. And what do you do to staff or how does staff react when they come back into a workplace setting where now they are, uh, they feel depersonalized, they, they feel detached from their employer, they've lost their support. So you now have potentially higher absenteeism rates, um, staff that just are not invested any longer. Uh, again, burnout uh, and leaving the profession. Uh, if they felt violated like that. And, and, you know, I read a report out of New York State when they put in their mandate, and it bragged that they had 55,000 workers fold in the last week. And uh, that's nothing to be proud of. That is, uh, that is shocking to do that when they had a choice. Um, and no one is not uh, honoring a nurse's responsibility to protect patients. Um, of course they have to, and they have to play a role in that. But there are many um, non-pharmaceutical, reliable, safe, consistent ways that healthcare professionals can protect, and it does not have to be a vaccine, and that was acknowledged by our chief officer of health. Um, the other major risk is, is financial risk. Um, where, and that one should have stopped this immediately on, it, on that alone. You know, when you do a financial risk analysis, your first uh, option is to look at the least costly ways to meet your objective. Um, and the least costly way clearly would have been, again, to have offered antigen testing. Uh, what they're facing now is costs of retraining, uh, and I was reading some material from human resource um, experts, and to replace a mid-level employee, you're talking about uh, potentially around 150% times their yearly salary to do that. When you start getting into specialized knowledge, you're now looking at even upwards of sometimes 400% of their yearly salary. And you know, when you look at some of these nursing jobs or, or some of these, um, again, our other skilled workers at our hospital, this is uh, extremely specialized knowledge that they had. You know, they fired um, ICU nurses with, with 30 years experience. They fired um, NICU nurses with with um, with tremendous experience, and that is 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 criminal. What they have potentially done to patients that could have benefited from those nurses' uh, care. Um, so, and you know, they also replacement costs. Um, they have reports that they were hiring agency nurses at incredibly inflated rates paying uh, double time, time and a half, and then they've got union arbitrations to, to manage. So um, this caught to a universal healthcare system that is already was in crisis long before the pandemic, uh, this alone is, um, is, is a very reckless act on behalf of these CEOs doing this without properly looking before they leapt. And that's what I would argue that they did. They did not 
in my opinion, uh, look at the proper thresholds, particularly when we had a, 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 with a vaccine that does have what is now being revealed to be rather significant limitations and the evolving nature of this pandemic. For the staff members who were reluctant to accept a vaccine because they don't like the mRNA platform, yeah. were they offered uh, what I'll describe as an old school vaccination based on an inactivated virus? Uh, we know that both China and India has those vaccines. Was that ever an option? Um, at our time, uh, when when our nurses were fired, uh, the that was not an option. Um, to my understanding, it was just the mRNA at that time. There has been since uh, a Novavax uh, vaccine that has come out. I'm not sure quite of its um, its platform that it uses, um, but at that time we only had those options. Thank you. The Novavax, I believe, is just uh, a lab mate spike. Uh, it's not the full inactivated virus, but we won't get into that. Okay. Um, now let's um, get back to the realities of the staff shortages. Uh -huh. What's the approximate average age range of the members that you've lost? You've commented on experience. Right. But uh, what age range would you say? Well, you know, that's kind of a, a, a significant thing that I've just sort of, I've just been talking to a lot of people and trying to like get lots of qualitative, good, rich data from some of these people who have been fired. And, you know, it tends to be uh, that a lot of them were in kind of that um, sweet spot where the public could have probably got at least five, ten years out of some of these very uh, experienced uh, nurses who um, just thought, no, we're not, I'm not, we're not doing this anymore. And you know, the, um, the, our data shows us clearly that before the pandemic, we had an aging workforce. And already at that time, um, uh, it was a significant amount of the staff that they already knew these nurses were 50 and over, and that we'd be facing a nursing crisis once we start losing these members. So to hold on to those, um, old nurses, for lack of a better word, um, was imperative. But uh, rather than hold on to them, this uh, would have pushed them aside and lost them. Can you give us a sense of um, the geographical origin or where the nurses uh, came from in cases of sort of more vocal nurses who resisted the mandates? Um, when you say uh, wh where they came from, um, you mean the, the hospitals or the... I didn't word that very well. I apologize. <laughs> so worry. at which countries did these nurses come from? The ones who protested the most? Uh, well, you know, again, um, hard to say. They generally, uh, the UK seemed to have had quite a good pushback. Um, the UK dropped their policy and actually it was interesting because the, the House of Lords in the UK, they uh, had a ruling that they rejected mandatory policy and the reasons were that the potential benefits of the proposal were disproportionately small, giving the subsequent costs for recruitment and the disruption it would have to the health service. And they stated they would have to be provided with very strong evidence to support this policy. So uh, again, in terms of nurses that were fighting back, I think it was a, a consistent a across many um, countries. Um, so hard to 
hard to say just one, but. What about immigrant nurses here in Canada, like the Chinese nurses, the nurses from Eastern oh, that's, Europe? That's, that's a really good point. Um, because um, I think what's, what, what I took issue with a lot with this, and as a nurse, um, I look at populations, and, and we're all taught this, to always look at you know, the lived experience of people and where they come from, and, and perhaps instead of the um, name-calling and hate-mongering, I'm just going to call it, to, um, that has been going on when someone declines a vaccine, um, to look at some of their, where they came from. And so you have to look at their backgrounds. Now, we know Canada is a country of immigrants. We welcome people who escape um, communism, authoritarianism, dictatorships, and they came to Canada for freedom. Um, instead, they got told that they would have to take a vaccine against their will. And these kind of populations, um, they stood up. Uh, in my hospital, you know, I had a, a, a nurse who just had arrived from China um, just several years earlier, and she just said, you know, Cindy, I, this is not what I came to Canada for. Um, this, I came here for freedom, and now this is happening. Um, I'd have people from, I have a, a very sad story of some uh, Serbian family from Hamilton. Both of them uh, went through the Serbian War. They came to work in Hamilton Health Sciences, and both of them lost their jobs. And they were literally in PTSD from this. And, and they, people can uh, mock as they will on the other side, but these are, are really painful experiences of to why people decline vaccination. And you know, we also have demographics that have um, generational trauma that, you know, uh, well-earned mistrust uh, of pharmaceutical industry and of health authorities. Black populations uh, and non-Caucasian populations that were uh, experimented upon and, and those kind of scars do not go. Um, so to suddenly again name call them and cast them out and fire them uh, that is, uh, again, completely unethical and nothing you would want to see from a healthcare professional. Um, we also forget about the lived experiences of people who suffered from abuse as children, and they have a very visceral reaction to having someone take away their freedoms. And they are not misogynist, they are not racist, they are not white supremacists. Uh, these are real people with genuine uh, psychological uh, reactions here, and and very many stood up. A lot of the nurses uh, in my hospital were Eastern Europe. Again, they know what communism looked like. They know what that looks like, and that's how they interpreted it. So they uh, they were a large majority of the group that 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 was terminated. And my understanding is that you're no longer working in uh, the nursing profession, is that correct? I am not. Um, I was terminated uh, um, along with my other colleagues. Uh, I have religious beliefs and creed that did not allow me to take a COVID vaccine. Um, but of course, um, just like every other nurse, my exemption that I put in was denied. I think a particularly troubling fact with my hospital, um, that's Mount Sinai Hospital, they put in the mandate 
Uh, the firing date was November 11th, and I think that that was extra shameful. Um, that was a day that commemorates our country's freedom, uh, what our uh, soldiers died for, and for a hospital to do that, it just shows another level of um, ins just insincerity, inhumanity, and uh, disrespect. You've mentioned that there was a lack of transparency across the system with respect to the number of staffing um, losses. Correct. What do you see as a solution to bring about accountability to get that data? Um, well, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, FOIs have been filed um, to uh, various hospitals, and uh, many are refusing to give that data. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure if we ever will get transparent numbers on that. But, uh, you know, when you look at, um, like, even I think uh, UHN admits to saying, oh, we lost about 1% of our staff. And when they say that, they would likely mean 1%, again, were terminated. Not all the other things we talked about, the resign, the leaves, the retiring the, the cascade from there. Um, but you know, when you like read again human resource material, when you lose specialized talent and specialized knowledge like that, even 1% is enough to send a system that's already depleted, already has staffing issues into chaos. Um, and, you know, I would argue the numbers are much higher than that. You know, the Ontario Science Table, again, in the letter that they wrote that I found whether, um, had lots of gaps, uh, they said that, don't worry, you know, um, hospitals around the country and the world, they haven't had any problems. They all say they're going to lose a lot of staff, but they haven't had problems. <laughs> Meanwhile, they cited a, a, a letter, I mean, sorry, an article that was in the BMJ from Italy, and Italy reported with their nationwide mandate, which they have since dropped, um, that they lost between 10 to 15 percent of their staff, medical staff, and that, that is crushing losses. And the science table published that as though that was okay. And that tells me that either they've never worked the front line in, in, in decades and they have no idea what losing 10% of an already depleted stressed unit would do, um, or they simply didn't even read their, their evidence. Um, they then also cited, you know, um, again, an American hospital that lost 2%, but we, we know that 2% would be, again, a serious blow on, it, it, on, on its own. Um, New York State, uh, when you look into their numbers a little more, their home health care uh, division lost 8% of their nursing staff, or and or of their healthcare staff, it wouldn't be nursing; it would be a, a bunch of healthcare workers under that. But that's eight percent um, in that area. And you know, it's interesting because the Wall Street Journal had an article on March sixth that lamented that New York citizens are now at risk because of staffing shortages. Um, and because many of the New York divisions are not meeting their performance targets. Uh, and meanwhile, I would, I would argue that likely the home health care that lost 8% of their staff is one of those that are not meeting their targets and putting the citizens at risk. 
So um, that, that that certainly, as we talked about, the numbers are important to know, uh, and I think we need transparency and accountability from CEOs that decided to um, go with the Ontario, go with the science table over um, Kieran Moore. And Kieran Moore, you know, on March 11th. Uh, was at Queen's University and has made another statement to reinforce his beliefs. And he said, you know, um, that uh, that uh, his intention was to never have a mandatory vaccine, vaccine, but instead a mandatory policy, and that he did endorse accommodations. And um, you, you know, those those of course, as we know, were not done. Despite that, Ford. Um, again, made a public statement when the time that all of the uh, NDP party and Liberal Party, et cetera, were trying to get him to put in a provincial policy, he stated that he would not risk the loss of tens of thousands of healthcare workers of Ontario because it would put the citizens at such risk. And the interesting part is back to my thing about um, risk benefit. The Ontario government did a risk benefit assessment and uh, um, Christine Elliott admitted that they did a risk assessment and that they found that the risk of losses of healthcare workers uh, would have been what she quoted as very significant. Um, and uh, and Dubai uh, from Quebec also canceled their program um, of mandatory policy provincially and saying that the effects would be devastating. And I suggest that, as we said, what, what we are seeing, that they were likely correct, and their numbers very well could have been correct. And, um, and it did, in fact, have a devastating effect on our ERs, our wait times. Uh, it's just going to make more and more canceled, potential canceled surgeries, more delays to diagnostics. Uh, anytime you lose valuable staff in an area that is so vital, uh, you are putting citizens at risk. Before I turn it over to the commissioners, I was supposed to ask you this in the beginning. Uh, do you promise that everything you testify to today is the truth? I do. Thank you. We'll see if the commissioners have any questions. Thank you. I, I believe I heard you say a number of times that um, uh, nurses, or some nurses, were seeking religious exemptions to this vaccine. Correct. And my question to you is, uh, is, is it not true that most of these nurses had previous vaccines? And what was special about this particular one that would have that would have made a religious exemption or the consideration mm -hmm. of a religious exemption? Sure. Well, you know, again, not all of them did have these vaccines, like the one I talked about. Yeah. Uh, I had a, a, a woman who had, uh, again, it refused on the exact same grounds. And, you know, often people, too, um, just because they may have started without a religious belief doesn't mean over the years that those religious beliefs do not form and that they do not uh, come to their God or their belief system in another way. Um, I don't think it was meaning that for just this particular vaccine, potentially, but that may have applied for other ones. I don't think that we know that. Um, I think that what was wrong, though, is to follow the... Um, 
direction only of, of a, a, mere, a mere mortal man that may run a church and say that this is not acceptable for vaccines. I think that uh, in Ontario, the standard is creed, and creed can extend to all kinds of facets of your belief systems. It uh, doesn't necessarily even have to be religious per se. It doesn't have to be tied to a religion. So you could have had people with a lot of underlying creed, um, genuinely, strongly, sincerely held beliefs that did extend into other areas beyond religion. And again, if there was a safe accommodation, um, that should have been afforded to them, I would say. And no one's denying, as we said, the obligation to keep the public safe, but the, and there are um, reliable ways to do that, as we said, Kieran Moore did confirm. I want to be clear, at least uh, maybe I'm, I misunderstood, but yeah. when exactly did the, the, um, the dismissals happen? Uh, oh, interesting. They started, um, I found that they really followed a pattern. They started around, uh, let's call it October 2021, and they were still actively going on until um, end of April 2022 across different hospitals across Ontario. Um, and you know, the interesting part of that is that Kieran Moore on February 3rd um, declared that two vaccines weren't, weren't cutting it. It, was, they weren't, it wasn't doing enough um, and that you would starting to need boosters. But the interesting part is, is that none of these hospitals, uh, I'm not going to say none, the ones I know of, uh, have not as yet put in a booster mandate. And to me, um, the policy objective has to be consistent with the measures applied. So if their policy objective is indeed patient protection and they have not yet put in boosters, uh, that to me looks like a, a, a glaring inconsistency. Um, you also have the uh, Ontario Science Table on December 15th declaring that this is a three-dose vaccine uh, and all the hospitals that apparently followed the science table with such diligence did not follow them any longer on that one. Um, so uh, the, 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 in terms of the timing of the policy, it is important because some hospitals were putting these in as clearly two vaccines were, were no longer giving the protection that was needed. So it, it would appear more to me that, that the, the policy objective was not patient protection, um, but rather it was 100% uh, vaccination rates. That seems what their policy was. And, um, you know, when you talk about patient protection, you've got some interesting gaps there. You have at the end of, of January, um, hospitals bringing back COVID positive staff to work. Um, and uh, to, uh, before they'd finish their isolation periods. So that doesn't appear, that looks like another inconsistency to me of the commitment to protection. And uh, the fact that they knew the vaccines were, um, some people had vaccines on board for now well over a year, uh, even a year and a half, and they hadn't had boosters. So uh, those people technically would have been safer testing if protection was truly their objective. Um, they would have been probably safer doing antigen testing, arguably. So, um, yeah, there's, there's some... Well, part of my reason for that question mm -hmm. uh, is I also think I heard you say, yeah. and it may have been some other witnesses, because <laughs> we've, been, we've, we've had a long line of, of, <laughs> of witnesses. Yeah. I thought I heard you say that 
Um, of course, the the injection, the 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 vaccines came out in Canada end of December, beginning of January 2021. Correct. And if I understood the testimony correctly, they were already becoming aware of what you called breakouts yeah. in uh, early or, or mid part of 2021, three or four months after. Yes. Which in a breakout means that you got you you got the vaccine, but you still got sick. Correct. But and so they knew that the vaccine at that time wasn't providing protection, but they were still firing people for almost a full year after that. Yes, this is the this is the concerning part. Um, it it appears that you know, and as we said, the vaccine has I'm sure helped many. Um, populations, um, but the concern is is that it, it is it is not of the caliber of this surefire uh, um, sterilizing uh, vaccine that you would expect to uh, justify this degree of heavy-handed mandate. Um, especially what was going on in the community and, and, and what was going on with some of the evidence, especially in light of Omicron. Uh, Omicron really uh, brought down uh, its, its it, it, like very short-lived, um, um, it appears, um, protection from that one. Um, it, it likely waned within several months. And again, should have been doing testing then or, or implementing boosters. And when they don't, that's when it starts to get look a little um, suspect. Um, also, I thought I heard you say that um, the uh, requirement mm-hmm. um, for hospital stays or people coming to hospitals yeah. was seemed to be going down because, and they were closing down ORs and they were doing all kinds of other things. Yeah. Um, and of course, they were letting staff go. So, mm-hmm. and there were some COVID infections coming in. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a devastating effect on the hospitals, not only because of the disease, but also because of the actions or policies taken. If you're letting go, I can't remember if you gave a percentage, but if you're let, letting go your most experienced staff, um, that's going to have a very long-term effect. And my question to you, after all that, is. Has the medical system, has our, has our medical system, has our hospitals recovered from this? Um, you know, it doesn't appear, uh, if you were to look at vacancy rates alone, um, just that data that I said out of Hamilton Health Sciences where they're now at 1,500 vacancies, um, that uh, would still indicate that I would think that they are still at quite a serious gap, a serious deficit there. And, you know, nursing shortages um, are well established in Canada, well prior to the pandemic. Uh, Canada has one of the lowest, uh, let's call them per capita, nurse of the world. And Ontario is one of some of the lowest there. Um, And, you know, they know that nursing staffing levels are consistent with less medical error, um, better patient outcomes, um, I mean, sorry, like adequate staff is is associated with all of those good things. And as soon as you start to deplete staff, you start to get into problems and patient threats to their their again their health and well being when you start depleting those numbers. So, to me, they they knew that already well before. They knew there was vacancy rates. They knew this was still in an ongoing pandemic, and they still chose to deplete those rates, those nursing rates, and and staff rates even less. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your very uh, detailed presentation. Thank you.
I hear you say that for some of the vaccine that are required to work in medical yeah. institution, natural immunity can be recognized if you haven't been vaccinated, but you can show that uh, you've been exposed. Correct. So I'm wondering that given that in COVID, natural immunity somehow has been put on holiday or something. It uh -huh. was no longer on the, on the table. I'm wondering about what was the specific recommendation or scientific rational of the scientific table to dismiss the validity of natural immunity for COVID? Yeah, uh, that again is another one of these um, head scratchers. We, we, we know that, as we said, they've recognized it up till now. Now, that's not saying that they, that they won't um, recognize it in the future, but at this point, yes, they are, they are, they are still actively um, firing. I even heard of a nurse, you know, still getting fired last week. Um, from from Trillium Hospital in uh, Mississauga, and uh, these are uh, again more than likely um, pe most pe citizens of, of Ontario have been infected and have a degree of natural immunity, but it's utterly um, it's it's appears disqualified on this one. There's uh, it's either get a vaccine or or don't have a job. And you know that that's the thing when I talk about choice and and in some sick perverse way. These people that argue, well, you still have a choice. You know, you can you can um, get a vaccine or don't work, and and that's not a choice. And um, you know, we know that, um, and they know that economic um, stability is a social determinant of health. And when you start to now, um, and and they also know that there is a high um, correlation of un with unemployment and all cause mortality. So there's a, a systematic review that found there was a 63% raise uh, increase of death associated with unemployment. So they know all of these things, and, uh, and yet they see it fit to tell someone they have to choose between their job or their livelihood or their job or feed their family or their job or pay their bills. Um, and I find that, again, um, all of these things all just seem to lack um, humanity tremendously. You also mentioned that there was a few hospitals in rural areas yeah. that were closed. Correct. Do you know whether they were closed? Most likely because they were short-staffed, but was it yes. due to the fact that in these uh, in these areas where maybe the number is not as high, right. the level of people that would no longer be available because they didn't take the vaccine was somewhat higher? Is it a reason why it um, The only thing I have heard of is um, closure due to staffing levels. So again, we don't know, and, I, and I'm not suggesting that every staffing issue is to do with the, with the mandate, but I, I am suggesting that it played an, a role in an unnecessary role. So uh, yeah, I'm not, um, I, I can't comment on, on the other facts of, of what closed some of those um, ERs, but the only thing I consistently keep hearing is staffing, staffing, staffing. Thank you. Thank you so much for your testimony oh, today and for your time welcome. today. Thank you guys. Thank you everybody.